Our text this morning comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter 3, and I actually forget which verses I did. Can someone tell me? Was it to 18 or 20? 20? Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Listen now for a word from God. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, 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 and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call. Go lie down again. So Samuel went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call, my son. Lie down again. Now, Samuel didn't yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then he said, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the story of Samuel and Eli. God, I pray whatever wisdom we would hear from it this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Um, first question, just really quickly. What time is the Lions game? Oh, oh, I got all afternoon. This is great. Awesome. Okay, here we go. I really didn't know that. <laughs> That's awesome. I was thinking I better make this one quick because people are going to be anxious to go. The Packers are playing before it, which is a more important game, right? And we want the Packers to win. Is that right? For the first time in Lions history? Okay. I'm just I'm trying to make sure. We're doing the prayers of the people later, and we'll, we'll mention these teams. So Packers win, Lions win. No. Um, well, thank you, thank you all for making it down on this cold Sunday. Uh, it was freezing. I had thoughts of staying home. <laughs> it was it's just so cold out there. Um, so I, I grew up, many of you know, I, I grew up, my, my parents divorced when I was about one, and I grew up kind of between them. And so I, I think the first time I ever flew on a plane, I was four years old. And um, this was at a time, this is pre-9-11, so it might shock some of you, at, but maybe not many. My mom was able to walk me all the way to the gate and put me in my seat and buckle my seatbelt for me, and then she left the plane. And then my dad came on the plane to get me off when I got to Florida. Um, and I, I sort of spent my childhood like this. Every Christmas and every summer I would go for a few weeks to visit my dad, and then I'd go stay with my mom. And I was sort of in between, always living out of a suitcase, always changing places, changing rooms. And um, after a while, I got pretty good at it. You know, I, I got pretty good at accepting the change. I got actually really comfortable living out of a suitcase and dealing with some of the transitional stuff that you deal with. Uh, and, and so much so, in fact, that um, I, I still love traveling. On our honeymoon, Sarah and I went, we, we took a 30-day road trip and went all the way to um, the Arctic Ocean in the northern territories of uh, Canada. And we drove all the way there from Montana. And it took, a, how many days did it take us to drive? 10 days just to drive there, um, but we car camped, and, and, and I loved it. I had the time of my life, and some of you were like, you're, you're crazy. Why, <laughs> why would you ever do that? Um, but I, I, I sort of have, have gotten used to it and love it, and I've, I've traveled um, in, in Europe before, and I've gone all kinds of places, and I've always been so great at dealing with change and transition until this most recent move that we've made. <laughs> And there is just something about this move that has, has taken something from my spirit, and I'm like, I'm, I'm never moving again. <laughs> and once my things are in a certain place, they're never moving again, and I don't want any change. I just want a little bit of stability. Can, can any of you relate to this? Anyway, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of hands. <laughs> and coming up very quickly, yeah, I mean, when we, I, I think it's something about, um, well, well, moving one, if you've, if you've moved a lot in your life, and many of us have, it gets old. It gets old pretty quickly. Um, but also, I think as we age, we just get tired of it. We lose the energy for it, you know. I, I heard someone say we're sort of like uh, lava when we're younger. We're molten. You can kind of form around anything that you see, almost like water maybe. But as you get older, like lava, you cool, you harden, <laughs> you become a rock. You're stiff, unable to change. And I felt very recently that I'm no longer as young or as changeable as I'd like to be. I'm stiffening, becoming a little more solid, not wanting to change. 
Eli is the high priest for the nation of Israel. And at the time that he's high priest, this essentially means that he is king. Um, and and not, not exactly like he's king, so don't, don't take that literally. He doesn't really have the power of a king, but he is functioning as the head of the nation. So he oversees what's happening in the temple. He oversees the sacrifices. He's the one that the people look to for spiritual guidance. He's really the intermediary between the people and God. And the way that his position worked at the time was that it was, it was assumed that your lineage would take over from you. So if you were the high priest, then whatever sons you had would then become high priests and so on and so forth. And this line would continue. Well, Eli is a, is a pretty good high priest, actually. He does really great work. And, and there's a wonderful story at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel where um, this woman named Hannah shows up, and she, she's barren. She's unable to have children. And at that time, this brought great shame upon her because she can't give her husband the children that he might desire. And every year she's come to the temple and she's prayed for God to give her a child and it's not happening. And so there's this one particular year when Eli is the high priest and Hannah comes to the temple and she's pretty overwhelmed by making the request one more time. And she knows the clock is ticking. And so she kind of falls to her knees and she starts wailing and screaming and shouting. And I, I think she's shouting at God and she's shouting at the heavens and she's so angry at the world that she hasn't gotten the child that she's been praying for and Eli overhears this and kind of goes to her and is trying to figure out what's going on and when he finally learns it he blesses her he says may God grant you the child that you're asking for may God answer your prayers and he has compassion upon her and then Hannah makes this declaration and says if if God does do this for me I'm going to bring that child back and that child is going to be dedicated to the Lord and he will grow up in the temple. And this is what happens. She, she, she goes home. Uh, she gets pregnant. She has this child named Samuel. And when Samuel is like, I think it's like four or five years old, the Bible says just a lad. She takes Samuel back to the temple and she dedicates him to the Lord. And this is where Samuel is going to grow up under the supervision, mentorship, sort of fatherdom of Eli. Eli, though, for all of the good ministry that he's doing, sort of has some problems on his hands. He, um, he, he's got these two sons whose names I have tried to pronounce all week, and I'm not even going to try, okay? You can, they're in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 2, they're introduced. Uh, you can try to pronounce those, but he's got these two sons, and they're awful. They're absolutely awful. Um, one, they're high priests in training, which means they do have some responsibility in the temple, and some of their responsibility includes sort of taking people in and helping them with the sacrifices they're going to make, going through some of the rituals and, 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 and you know, working the liturgy. But one of the things that they're doing when people come to the temple is um, they're stealing from them. So they, they'll come in with their offering, and one of the things the high priest was supposed to do was take a, a three-pronged fork, it says, and take it and stick it into the animal that was being burned, and whatever came out on the fork, the high priest would keep, and that was sort of their portion and their share. That's how they would eat. That's how they made their living. It's how they sustained themselves. 
But what Eli's sons would do is they would choose exactly what they wanted. They didn't want to leave chances to the three-pronged fork. They would just say, give me that. And when someone would refuse, they would sort of extort them or use their power against them to get exactly what they wanted. And so they were taking more than they should have been taking, and they were taking what they should not have been taking. On top of that, when um, people would come to sacrifice, this is, this is where it gets a little bit scandalous and racy, uh, the men were allowed sort of further into the inner courts of the temple, and women were supposed to remain outside the temple. And so uh, Eli's sons would wait in the outer courts of the temple where all the women were, and then they would sleep with the wives of these husbands that were coming down to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So they're sleeping around with people who are coming to the temple to offer sacrifices. They're stealing offerings from the people and from God. And on top of all of that, they don't care. There's not one bit of them that feels remorse. In fact, Eli goes to them one day and rebukes them and says, what are you doing? What is all of this that I'm hearing about you? You're, you're you know, committing these immoral acts in the temple. You're stealing from the people. What are all these things that I'm hearing? And they, they don't have anything to say because they don't care. And so Eli, Eli says to them, look, I could help you if, if your grievance was with another person, but when you start offending God, what do you want me to do about it? Well, it's about this time that God appears to Eli in a vision and in the vision, God delivers this prophecy. And the prophecy is essentially, hey man, <laughs> you're done. Your line is not going to take over uh, the priesthood. You're not going to continue. Your sons are behaving awfully, and you've brought shame to me. You've brought shame to your nation. you brought shame to you and your household. And so you're out, and the end is coming. And he actually tells Eli, both of your sons are going to die on the same day, and I'm not going to tell you how that's going to happen, but it's going to be pretty bad for you. I think Eli at this point sort of has a choice, right? He, kn he knows he's done. His life, everything he's working for, essentially looks like it's going down the drain. And I think he has a choice to respond one of two ways. He can accept it, or he can kind of do the thing that King Saul does a little bit later in 1 Samuel. You remember when Saul finds out that David is going to uh, be his successor and Saul is out and, and the Lord is not with Saul anymore. The, the scripture says something like um, an evil spirit descends upon Saul and Saul makes it his life mission to try to kill David because he doesn't want David to take over. And Eli, Eli could do this. Eli could resist. Eli could find a way to make some more trouble. Eli could try to fight God, but he doesn't. He sort of sits with it and takes it in. And then one night, while Samuel is sleeping in the temple and Eli's not quite asleep, God shows up and calls to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel jumps up and runs to Eli and says, yes, Lord, here I am. What do you, what do you want? And Eli says, I didn't say anything. Go, go back to bed. Go. And that, that process repeats two more times until finally Eli kind of picks up on things and says, oh, 
the Lord is speaking to him. And again, Eli has a choice, right? Eli can say, oh, I, d- I do not want the Lord speaking to that child. I mean, this kid's like eight, nine, ten years old maybe. We don't know, but he's just a little kid. What does he know? And the Lord's going to come to him and, and, and tell him all these things. That he has a choice to help Samuel or to resist him. And he chooses to say to Samuel, Samuel, it's the Lord speaking. So if you hear that again, sit up, say, here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. And this is exactly what happens. And then the Lord comes back again, says, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel says, here I am. Your servant is listening. And then the Lord tells Samuel what the Lord told Eli before, that Eli's done. He's going to be out as high priest. His sons are not going to take over and that essentially the line of Eli has been cursed. And there's nothing that anyone can do about it. And so Samuel lays awake all night, and I I mean, and I would too if I got a, a word like that. He lays awake all night, and in the morning he goes to Eli, and the first thing Eli wants to know is what God say. And Samuel doesn't want to say it. <laughs> and why would you? But Eli says, look, even worse things are going to happen to you if you don't tell me. And so you got to tell me. And so Samuel tells Eli what Eli already knew. And again, Eli has the choice to look at this little kid and think, what a brat. <laughs> Coming to me to tell me what I already know, what the Lord's already revealed, and sort of rub it in my face that I'm not going to be the high priest, that my family has brought shame upon itself because I can't control my sons. He has a choice to resist God again and to resist Samuel. And he chooses not to. And in fact, I think it's at this point that he begins to pivot and to really pour in to Samuel and to really begin to mentor him because now, The Lord is with Samuel. The Lord is speaking directly to Samuel. And Eli, at this point, sort of adopts him. And it's for the first time in the text, if you read the story all the way through, it's the first time in the text that Samuel begins to say to, to, excuse me, that Eli begins to say to Samuel, my son, my son. And in a way, he kind of adopts him at this point. As time goes on, the Lord is with Samuel, as we heard near the end of our reading today, and Samuel's word grows stronger and stronger, but it continues to go poorly for Eli. In fact, um, Eli, when he's like, I think he's like 98 years old, he's sitting in a chair, and and, uh, he's just heard that the the Israelites have gone out for war, and they're, they're battling the Philistines, and one of the things they would do when they went out to war is that the high priests would go out ahead and they would carry the Ark of the Covenant, which had in it the tablets of Moses and Aaron's staff, all these uh, wonderful sacred religious artifacts that carried a lot of weight and meaning for the people. And it sort of gave them spirit and courage to fight. So they would take this Ark and, and the high priests would carry it out in battle and then this would give the men strength to fight and do war. Well, Eli gets a report that while they were doing this, his two sons were carrying the ark because they were the ones to go out ahead, and they were both struck down in battle. 
And after they were struck down, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, which is a great shame on the whole nation, and again on Eli's house. And what's really fascinating about this ending for Eli is that when he hears his two sons have been struck down, you don't really hear the writer say that there's any reaction. But as soon as Eli finds out that the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen by the Philistines and it's the fault of his two wayward sons, Eli, who's sitting in a chair, falls backward in the chair and breaks his neck and dies. Have any of y'all heard that quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, We are not makers of history. We are made by history. Anyone remember that? Heard it? No? No? Okay. It's it's been on my social media like the past week or so, and and I think it's always taken out of context. Um, As if, you know, the way it's posted, it's like Dr. King was trying to say that we are, um, everything is determined for us. Our future isn't wide open. Everything's been set, and so you're kind of resigned to whatever cards you got, that's what you got, and, and deal with it. When, if you know anything about his ministry and his life, he's saying the exact opposite. He's always pushing us to be nonconformist, to resist, to use the power of love to try to change the world around us. And so I, I did a little investigation on the rest of that quote, and it, it comes from this sermon. And in the sermon, Dr. King is, is talking about how uh, in America, and, and particularly the church in America, uh, we resemble thermometers more than we do thermostats. We're more like thermometers that just measure the temperature of the culture around us and the people around us, and less like thermostats that are able to actually adjust that temperature and change the culture and change the atmosphere around us. And so this line comes right in the middle of this wonderful sermon that I I think you all should go read. Um, And and he says, you know, essentially, if, if we give up, then we are not makers of history. We are made by our history. We allow our history to determine our future. But if we choose to not conform, if we choose to resist, if we can find that courage, then actually we have the power to set the future. We can be thermometers, Dr. King says, or we can be thermostats. I think Eli is a great example of someone who could have been made by his history. He had had two terrible sons. (laughs) He had a prophecy saying that his priesthood was coming to an end, that his line wasn't going to be there. He could have allowed that to basically push him to sit on his hands and just let whatever happened, happen. But he chose at every point in his life that he could to continue to pivot when God pivoted, to change when God was changing, to invest in Samuel when that wasn't even his blood, to adopt Samuel in a way when that wasn't really his blood. That choice that he made to change with God and so change the atmosphere of the nation I think was a very important one and a good lesson for us today.
I think we in the church really like to think of ourselves as thermostats. But as Dr. King said in the 60s when he was preaching this sermon, I think we're more like thermometers. I think we're more just a reflection of the culture around us. We're more just sort of a gauge on whatever else is happening in the world. That's what's happening here. And, you know, Dr. King's critique still exists for us today. And I guess my question for us is how, as a church in 2024, as we, as a local church, are going through a lot of changes, but also as a city going through a lot of changes, and I think as a country are in a pivotal year, how do we, Fort Street, be more like thermostats than thermometers? How do we sort of accept the changes that are going on, but also bring about changes? in our worship, in our life together, in our life as individuals. What can we do to create change around us? Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for today. Lord, thank you for your word, for Samuel, for Dr. King, God, and for all those who continue to lead us into the future. In Jesus' name, amen.